You know, girls can believe that they can grow up to be superheroes. They won't believe that they can grow up to be Superman. So the more we can have that gender-neutral language, the much more inviting and less exclusive we have our industry. Kia ora, I'm Troy, here as CEO, and welcome to Stirring the Pot. Thanks for connecting. If you're new, here's what you can expect. We're going to be talking the tough stuff, the things that keep us metalheads up at night. There are many challenges facing our industry and equally many opinions on how we should tackle them. Stirring the Pot provides a facilitated forum to discuss and challenge these viewpoints. So let's get to the nuts and bolts of it. Today we're talking with Nikki Smith, who is a chartered professional engineer at HEB Construction. With over 25 years experience in road maintenance and construction, she has experience managing construction projects, working in council, and provides technical engineering guidance and consultancy roles. She currently works in a business development and improvement role at HEB Construction. She is also passionate about improving the recruitment, retention, and advancement of women in engineering and is currently working on her PhD at the University of Auckland based on this topic. What are the statistics relating to women in engineering now? So what we're seeing, so the percentage of women studying engineering is sort of around or just over 20%. And so it's been like that for the last couple of decades. Um, what we're seeing in industry is that the number of women in, in industry is sort of that 12 to 14%. So I guess like, and then when we get into the trades, it's it's much lower, which you'll be aware of, like around 3 to 4%. But what we're seeing in engineering is that even though like for, for quite some time we've had over 20% of women studying, we're still only seeing 14% in industry. So it's what we call a leaking pipeline. So that um, yeah, obviously that's not transitioning into women in industry, which has a compounding issue of those women in leadership roles. So we're getting these women, 20% of our graduates coming in, female, losing them along the way. So then when you get to sort of my level, senior leadership, there's very, very few women. So we're thinking about changing a culture and all of those sorts of things, you're losing that influence at that higher level, losing role models for our young female engineers. Um, so that leaking pipeline is a compounding issue. Mm-hmm. I think um, Engineering New Zealand say the stats are currently around 17%, which was up against 16%, which was what I looked at maybe a year ago. Um, and I know that it's also dropping again in Australia. So there's that's probably a global issue. Tell us about your research and what your scope of studies have, have been in this area. So I'm currently studying my PhD at Auckland Uni through the um, Civil and Environmental Department. So I'm seven years part-time into that of what should be, hopefully, fingers crossed, an eight-year um, part-time degree. So starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel My um, topic is the retention of women in engineering. So looking at that, you know, there's there's so many ways we can attack this issue, I guess, and and trying to get more women in the door is one thing. Um, I decided to concentrate on how we retain them and looking at that leaking pipeline to see if we can do something to, to keep more of our amazing young females in the industry. 
I guess for me, when I looked at it, so I'm a, a civil engineer with 30 years, nearly 30 years experience in the industry. I've had this amazing career. I've raised three children. I've had this really agile, flexible career. I um, have a challenging role that fits in with my family life. I earn good money. I've got three children, two sons and a daughter that have this amazing female role model in their life. And I guess I go, why? I don't think I'm special. Um, and so why has this been such an amazing career for me, yet for other women coming behind me or that came through at the same time that that dropped out? So that was, I guess, the 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 why and, and a bit of the scope of what I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about that drop from 20%-ish down to maybe even as low as 12%, that's a good 25 to 30%. Uh, reduction. So what yeah. is happening there? What have you been able to ascertain? So there's a few things. So I've done, um, so part of my research, obviously the start was a, a literature review and then I did a pilot study with 11 women that have stayed in industry, um, a bit more conversational. And then I've done a questionnaire that's gone out to men and women um, in industry looking at the factors that lead to intent to leave for men and and how that compares to women. Um, so there's a few things that we're starting to see emerge and some of that we know, like because engineering is male dominated, um, so so women are a minority. So there's um, challenges around tokenism and, and um, part of being a minority, feeling that you stand out, feeling that you have to work harder, um, feeling very obvious, I guess, in some of those situations, not having role model models and, and your peer groups. The other thing is that engineering is still a very gendered um, profession. So it's still like society and our peers still expect engineers to be male. So even women that have gone into engineering they've already overcome this challenge where they're embarking on a career that they're not expected to succeed in, I guess, by society. And some of us carry that already, like we already believe that, let alone trying to, you know, what other people might think about that. So that um, means that we struggle with role identity. So we're already struggling to believe that we will be good engineers, that we fit this role, that this role is suited to us. And... um, the other thing, like which I sort of touched on before, is this male-dominated culture. So we, you know, for the last few centuries or whatever, it's been a male-dominated um, industry. So the culture is very male-dominated. So when you look at things like work-life um, balance, flexibility, um, is a very long hours culture, presenteeism. You need to be able to drop everything and, and move to another project, those sorts of things. So that's, you know, being entrenched by this very male-dominated culture. Um, so women are trying to, I guess, break into that a little bit as well. And then when we're not having the senior woman to try and change some of that, it, um, it's yeah, really hard to, to have that change. And what were some of the differences that you found in that intent to leave between males and females? So the the key ones, and this is um, a paper that I'm working on at the moment, so hopefully at some stage get this published, but the the key ones, so um, development roles is key for men and for women, so that access to development roles is a key in terms of life satisfaction, career satisfaction, and um, reducing intent to leave. For women and not men, there's influential relationships 
and um, what we call support authenticity. So when we think about inclusion, inclusion is belonging and this value on uniqueness. Um, so for women, this, this ability to be themselves, to be authentic, to bring their own self to work, rather than, I guess, coming to work and having to conform to this male-dominated culture. Um, so if, if they have this, this support for them to be their own person and influential relationships and access to development roles, they're much more likely to stay. Um, whereas for men, it's access to development roles and the other factor for them, key factor for them was what we call prompt change, which is this proactive personality and an ability, I guess, to look for opportunities and, um, and really track down those opportunities. So when you think again about our current culture and industry, if we are looking at access to development roles being easier for people that are more proactively seeking them out, we will continue to provide the best opportunities to men that tend to have that, I guess, um, the ones that are staying are, are more proactive. So if we can look at th that access to development roles, make sure that they're clearly available to to men and to women, that they're being, um, people are being promoted on, on capability and not personality and not um, the squeaky wheel, let's say, um, I think we will start to see better access for, for women and, and then being able to see that there is a career pathway and then staying in the career. Mm, it's really interesting because that definitely resonates with me. I feel like there's been such a force in my career to conform to this idealized version of leadership, which is just naturally not me. Um, and uh, oftentimes when I've gotten feedback on that, it's really been around feedback on my personality. Um, and I, I think my uh, career deliverables have been able to stand on their own, but certainly I've felt as though I've needed to change myself a lot and I really rebel against that notion. So I totally could understand how that could make a person leave an employer and potentially if they experience that enough to leave, mm. uh, you know, the profession. Uh, is that is that something that is coming out in your research? Is that what, what they're meaning in terms of that authenticity? Yeah, definitely. And I think there's a couple of things that go into that. So because we don't have that that balance of role models and balance of leaders within our industry, so middle managers and um, I, I guess our graduates and the like are seeing that the, the leaders in this industry are, you know, male, have specific male traits and even because of the culture that's developed over time, they tend to be quite strong, forceful, ambitious men. Um, so if you don't conform to that, there is this feeling that you you won't get to leadership roles. And even if you have your graduates coming in who, who their managers are, are amazing managers, female, doing a great job, and then they see that they're not getting promoted because they don't fit the norm of what's expected at that next level, then you can see why, a, like we're talking about really strong, smart young females that have already overcome so much to get here. Like if you're not seeing that I'm going to be this amazing leader in the future in this industry, then yeah, you are going to start pursuing other opportunities. Um, so yeah, 100%. And, and the other thing that's interesting is 
um, you know, we often have conversations around why, why is it there that leakage and what tends to come up is women are leaving because they want to have a family. How did that appear in your responses? So I, th- I think when you look at the research, women leave before they have a family. Um, it's not to say that the the thought of having a family and working in an industry is not the reason that they leave and, and possibly that's a factor to it. I, I don't think it's around um, I can't juggle a career and family. It's more once I have a family, can I can I keep my hand in? Can I work flexibly? Can I, you know, just manage the next five years, seven years, and then get back into a career track that enables me by the time I'm 50 to have this amazing leadership role? Whereas if I think if you sit back and go, I'm I'm 25 or or 30 and I'm starting to think about having children and that I can't see how this is how I'm going to still be an amazing leader in this industry. I'm just going to start looking at something that will give me better opportunities. So we do, we don't see in the research that that's a key factor. Like we, I've left because I had a family and couldn't come back, but it. Yeah, possibly more around that role model and career path and getting those development roles and the other factors that are leading to, to them opting out. And do we know where they're going when, once they leave the profession? Do we know where they go? Not really. So the I guess the, the challenge in my research as well is getting access to those women that have left. So because we don't have a um, – obviously we have Engineering New Zealand that has this great membership. We don't have – engineers who have left engineering um, membership so it's really hard to tap into women that have left and I, I guess for organisations it's really key to get that um, those exit interviews and trying to get some data in terms of why the women are leaving and whether they're leaving their business or whether they're leaving industry altogether but it's yeah it is a real challenge to try and get that data. And how does this feel for you? What is what's your experience, and what is resonating with you from the research? So I think what is resonating is the, you know, like women, like we we graduate from engineering, and we we don't want special treatment, you know. And this is, you know, often we'll put initiatives around our females to enable them to be more successful, and some of that can really make your um, your skin crawl and go, I don't need special treatment, I'm here on my own merits. And I think it's understanding that the initiatives that we do need to counter some of the challenges and not be this band-aid that we think is going to solve the problem. So the key thing there is to actually understand and for women and men to understand these challenges. So there's some you know, statistical challenges that we can't change. We are a minority, we don't have female leaders, we are working in a male-gendered profession it is a entrenched male culture so let's put that to one side and go this is the environment you're working in um so so now that we're all clear on that so women need to be clear about that as well and then okay this is what we can do to make sure that there's equal access to development roles is um you have access to influential relationships so if the informal and formal networks at work are developed out of work at the pub after work by a at a boys club or whatever then let's look at how we make sure that there's access to that um so I think definitely for me 
I, I came into engineering not wanting to be treated any differently, um, wanting to what we call assimilate. So I just will be part of, the, I'll act like one of the boys and then you will allow me into your group. And so early on in my career, I, I definitely didn't rock the boat. And I, I, like I had a great time and I loved it and it's been an amazing industry, but it wasn't until I got older that I was like, actually, some of this is not okay or let's start to understand some of the changes that need to be made. And I, I guess I found my voice where earlier on it was much easier just to to accept a lot of that and um, and put your head down and, and carry on. What is your personal, well, what are your personal views on uh, uh, affirmative action? What do you mean by like affirmative like in uh, in terms of uh, quotas or minimum targets that type of thing? Mm. So I think um, like I, I guess for me I'm not sure about quotas. Like and I guess I haven't like in New Zealand we probably haven't used them and it's um, it's hard to see if that would be effective. I think there's a, a step between that. I think at the moment where floundering and so the step between floundering and doing something is reporting and understanding our statistics and setting targets and I think we haven't even tried that yet so I you know like most organizations aren't bold enough to say this is what we want this is what we're striving towards and this is how we will report against it and even though we know we're in a really bad position we're not afraid to report that bad position because that's how we will get better I think that we should be mature enough and and value diversity enough that we don't actually need someone to instill quotas um, and if we can actually yeah develop I guess some affirmative action through through reporting and targets and trying a little harder to really understand the problem and and how we combat that. Mm. I think that uh, early on in my career I was definitely opposed. I thought you know, people would be able to compete and get there on their own merits and, you know, there was whoever won the competition was, was deserving. But now my my opinion has really changed and I'm a very strong advocate for affirmative action and specifically um, setting targets and quotas because uh, I just really don't see that any change, any systemic mm. change has happened despite any of the interventions and that until we get that minimum level of women in the industry and especially at the le- in the leadership positions um, and I know that that's very uncomfortable for some people because they then have to sit with um, the discomfort of accusations that perhaps they got their roles because of that but I actually think that it's our duty people of our generation really have to sit with that discomfort to make a difference for the next generation. I think um, the, um, I guess the challenge is is setting quotas and then organisations ticking a box versus understanding the issues and trying to make change and and the outcome should hopefully in terms of you know statistically and reporting should be the same. It's, it's trying to drive that change and and make it an authentic change that is going to. And that the people at the top value that change. Yeah, and I, you know, we've seen in the past that sometimes it needs to be through quotas and someone else saying you have to do this. It's just trying to work out how do we 
get back into the mechanism of it and really understand why we're not achieving. You know, I've, after the last 20 or 30 years of, of actually having some more numbers coming through, why aren't we achieving those women coming in to really strong leadership roles? Mm-hmm. And it's also that difference too, isn't it, between diversity and inclusion and mm-hmm. really having that genuine support for women to have a voice around the table, not just a seat around the table. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, definitely. So are there any interventions um, that is coming up from your research that could help A, from male's perspective um, and B, from women's perspective? And I'm asking separately because I find that there's almost like a rape culture um, approach where it's all about women need to do this in order to succeed um, and to get to to basically um, succeed in a pretty disadvantaging um, process, and I feel like there is a bit more to the story that there is a obligation on those who have got the privilege in this circumstance, which are the men, to think about how they do things differently. Yeah. So when we think, yeah, definitely. So if we look at our industry. And and we know that we've got this leaky pipeline. So the majority of our percentage of women are at the lower levels because they're the ones that are coming in and we're losing them along the way. So and if you look at a, an organization, the influence is at the top. So if the men at the top don't honestly believe that there's value in in having diversity and inclusion at the table then everything else becomes a tick box and everything is just a process and it's a thing that we can tag someone in on LinkedIn and prove to our clients that we're doing a good job. So that authentic um, and honest belief that that it's achievable and it will have benefit as a, as a start and then trying to actually understand those barriers, how looking at the organisation and the culture and and trying to unpack what is inherently a culture that's going to always be more successful um, or enable men to be more successful and say okay let's look at how we do things differently and when we start to understand that you know access to development roles is key for men and women are we actually making sure that that women who have this challenge of role identity and are maybe less likely to put themselves out to fail um and um and I guess stretch themselves or proactively seek out those opportunities, are they getting equal um, opportunity to to stretch um, career roles as men do? So, so I think there is a big piece that men can do. And if they don't start being advocates and start using the right language, um, using inclusive language and and really being selling the um, benefits of diversity then it's going to be really hard for women who are a minority plus a real minority at the leadership table. So I think, and then for women, I think it's, there's, there's two as well. Like I, I see women in leadership. Like for me, I like I've found my voice and I, I'm really confident in my role and I'm really happy with my job and I could easily just carry on and and. I guess put my blinkers on but I think it's really important for people like me to keep that voice and start to challenge because it's not for me but for those women coming in behind me so I can see it so you know you need to be able to 
yeah, have your voice if you're in a leadership role. Mm-hmm. And then for the woman coming through, I think the more awareness around what what is acceptable and what's not acceptable, and if they are getting passed over for development roles or career opportunities, they don't have to be like their male counterparts, but they might just need to find an advocate and and have some of those um, people in their business that they can say, look, I I want to be able to advance. I'm I'm struggling here. You know, how can I get support from people within the organisation? And I guess the other thing I would say to women, if you're in an organisation where you don't feel you have a voice or you can't see change, change the organisation um, and not the industry because there are some amazing organisations out there that will give you a great career opportunity and at your interview and, um, you know, seek those opportunities out Um and really understand if, if your that organisation is going to support your culture and what and your success um, personally. Mm, absolutely. And do you see that um, this stereotype of what a successful leader looks like is starting to change? For example, with Brene Brown's research around vulnerability, do you do you think that that changing perception of idealised leadership is going to be beneficial? Yeah, I. Yeah, definitely. So I, I think, and this is, you know, like it's, this is not just about women. This is about men that don't fit into this box of, you know, um, of, of being a, a dictator, let's say, which is maybe our, our um, historic view of what a leader was. And so we're starting to see men with much more EQ and um, much more vulnerability. And, and those are really, you know, strong leaders in our business. And so the more we get that diversity of leadership style and start to say, yeah, there's different ways of, of leading, you know, successfully leading, definitely it opens up. Um, it just broadens the spectrum for everybody um, and includes, yeah, women into that as well. Even yesterday I was at a meeting where I had to point out that the language being used around the table was very gendered and very um, not welcoming of engaging with women well how important is language it's to me like it's one of those quick ones if we can start to have our language being gender neutral so when we uh, interesting conversation I had with someone the other day they're talking about the boys out on site and I was like whoa hang on like is there no girls out on site and they're like what do you mean I'm like are there no girls on that site? And they stopped and thought and went, oh, actually, I don't think there are, which made them made it then okay for them to talk about the boys on site. And I said, but do you not realise that when you talk about the boys on site, all you're doing is reinforcing the fact that that is a, a role more deemed suitable for men. So you're, you're, by your language, you're excluding women. So the more we can talk about um, the teams, the crews, um, the the people that we work with, and and get rid of some of you know like foreman, chairman, some of those terms that are really hard for for women to see themselves in a role that already excludes them. So I think like what I say, you know, when we talk about inspiring our young children, you know, girls can believe that they can grow up to be superheroes. They won't believe that they can grow up to be Superman. So the more we can have that gender-neutral language, that much more inviting and less exclusive, we have our industry. 
So there you go. Thanks for joining our conversation with Nikki today. If you'd like to connect more with her, you'll find her details in the show notes. Nikki is on a tide of change, and as she says, it's not a lack of firms wanting to attract and retain more women, but rather a lack of means. They see the value, but no clear pathway for increasing diversity. So how do we affect cultural change? In my view, it starts with conversations like this and continues by putting steps into place to make such changes. Most importantly, we then need to get the right people in the room to take these crucial steps in their organisations. Food for thought till we see you next time. So hit subscribe and if you liked what you heard today, please like, review or share with any metalheads you know. Let's spread the word. Kia ora, it is Greg here again, Harris Innovation and Transformation Architect. If you've liked what Nikki has had to say and you'd like some support and resources on how you can transform your HR practices around your business, get in touch. We'll get you linked up and into our HR innovation cluster. Uh, My details are in the show notes.